Hi, and welcome to PodRocket, a web development podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it free at LogRocket.com. I'm Tejas Kumar, and I'm a developer relations consultant. Today, we have Minko Gechev on the show. Minko has been on the show before and is the engineering product and developer relations lead at Google for Angular. And so, of course, I'm really excited to talk DevRel and Google and Angular and all of it. Today, he's here to talk about his JS Nation talk, Angular Momentum. Welcome back, Minko. Thank you. Glad to be back. It's great to have you. It's been I've been really excited about this session for a long time because I, I really admire your work and commitment to Angular, not just Angular, but engineering excellence across the board. I've been following you for a while and I'm excited and honored that I get to chat with you today. Before we get into the talk and your details, do you mind just telling our listeners a little bit about your background, experience, and involvement in Angular, Google, DevRel, etc.? Sure, yeah. I was actually reflecting on this today and uh, turned out that I have been working on Angular-related things since 2012. Or so, I was uh, very obsessed in college with software engineering, like design patterns and best practices. And I was supposed to build a, an application, a web app for a startup based in San Mateo here. That was back in the day when I was still in Bulgaria, in Sofia. And I was trying to pick the best framework for the job. And with my bias towards software engineering, like design patterns and best practices, the only solution back then was AngularJS. So I started doing AngularJS and contributing to different open source projects. In the meantime, I opened my very first pull request to AngularJS. I remember how excited that, exciting that was. Created a style guide that ended up being popular, got traction. People started translating it to different languages. From there, um, I started reading the Angular source code and wrote a book about Angular. So one p- big part of my talk at JS Nation was that AngularJS and Angular are actually different technologies, which is not obvious. And I would, I would say that maybe the branding could have been a little bit better. So that's something we can talk about. And uh, yeah, from there, I built some tools for static analysis. Google started using them and invited me to join the team. So um, after I stopped working on my startup back in 2018 or so, I joined Google to contribute to Angular like this time as my full-time job being part of developer relations. And since then, started. Uh, I took over this team and now I'm also supporting the product, figuring out what we'll be building next in Angular, how we'll be ma- able to manage all the different requirements that are coming for the framework from different sources and figuring out the path forward. Wow, that's a lot. There's so much in there I want to unpack. And I think we like digressions here on PodRocket. We might digress a little bit because I find it, everything you said pretty interesting. And I want to zero in on, you mentioned this first pull request to AngularJS that you were very proud of. I know a lot of people listening want to get into open source and people want to contribute to these large projects. There's a lot of fear there. How do I even approach this? Because it's a code base I'm not familiar with. And I, what if someone else takes the issue? And is the team going to be mean to me on the pull request? And I, I speak to a lot of people as a DevRel consultant myself, and there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt in contributing to open source. So I'm curious what your experience was. How did you find the issue to work on? And how did you get familiar enough with the code base to actually start opening pull requests? Yeah, it is a very simple pull request. I just added missing brace, I think, documentation in JSDoc. So it was a super simple one. I wouldn't say I'm really proud of it, but I was definitely very anxious to open it. I remember like opening it twice, even the first time I closed it, just because even though it was so simple, I messed something up with Git. And the second time, 
it worked out and I kept refreshing the browser because back then I was not getting these like push updates when something changes. So I kept refreshing and trying to figure out what's going to what's gonna happen. Is it going to be merged? And eventually after a couple of hours, one of my former colleagues now, he approved the pull request and got it in. So it was really exciting, even though it was just a single line change. That's great. And then how did you graduate to probably more significant changes? You mentioned you did some stuff with static analysis and so on. Did someone from the maintainers come alongside you and say, hey, I want to help you with more onboarding? Or how did that? How did you grow in that? Yeah, it was a long journey, actually. Like first, I re-implemented, like I built a small prototype of AngularJS on 200 lines of code. So I wanted to build the basic functionality. Yeah, I, I wrote an article about that. And it has the same things. It has like selector-based matching. It has the same compiler, which is just-in-time compiler of the DOM. It has dependency injection, all that stuff in 200 lines of code. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how it works. Um, kept reading the source code. I was very excited about compilers. And back then, AngularJS, back in the day, it had an interpreter of expressions. So that's where I learned a lot about lexical analysis, syntax analysis. And this helped me to build a tool for static analysis as well, because it uses the same concepts. I'm parsing the content, and after that, I'm traversing the abstract syntax tree. And since I joined Google, I mean, before that, in the meantime, I was also... I should show you all the books here I have about compilers. I, I was really excited about that stuff. And I kept doing a lot of engineering work. I'm sure I've written like many millions of lines of code because I was doing that. I was going through my notes in the notes app and I had a, an entry there. You shouldn't be working 12 hours a day just because eventually you're going to burn out. You should be working only 10 hours a day <laughs> and two hours be doing martial arts. <laughs> I would say that I reduced my coding time now. <laughs> I'm definitely way more reasonable in the... But I definitely went through this period of time where I was just writing code every single moment. And this helped me to faster get used to more complicated concepts and make bigger and more significant contribution contributions. And when you were making these contributions, did you also have a full-time job somewhere else at the time? Or did you just have all the time to dive into all this compiler stuff and really go nuts? Uh, yeah, I had a I had a startup. I had my own startup, Rhyme.com, and we were building the product from scratch. Back then, I was actually using React for the front end of Rhyme.com. It was just the right choice at the time. The Angular team announced that they will be working on this new framework called Angular. Back then, they called it Angular 2, which is a completely different framework from AngularJS. And... I didn't know what to do. Should I start using Angular 2 that is not ready yet? Or should I be using AngularJS? So I decided, well, I'm just going to go with React. And I'll say that was the right choice back then, for sure. And uh, yeah, just build a startup. We ended up sending it to Coursera. And I joined Google to focus on Angular full-time. That's great. Yeah, I, I also switched to React. I used to be an AngularJS developer up until 1.3 or 1.3 point something, if I remember correctly. And then the Angular 2 came around, which is, is a different product entirely. And I was like, oh, do I have to learn Dart? Do I have to do I have to use TypeScript decorator syntax? And then React shows up with JSX. And I was like, oh, this actually looks a bit closer to what I want to write. So I share that with you. I want to dive a little bit into your talk, Angular Momentum. You started the talk saying that Angular has grown seven times in the last five years and is the second most popular framework behind React in the 2022 State of JavaScript survey. Why do you think that is? What do you attribute this growth and sustained popularity to? So yeah, there are quite a few things, actually. And also, I mentioned React as a framework. I think Angular and React are generally in slightly different categories. Maybe Angular is closer to something like Next.js rather than React itself. 
it's really hard to categorize them, but I mentioned React specifically just because that's how people have been positioning these frameworks outside, and that's like a popular comparison. A few things that contributes to Angular, for sure that it is backed by Google, and you're just getting some certainty that it will be a reliable product. Like People who are joining Google, they have quite a lot of engineering experience, and they have seen a lot of projects with a different scale. And our team is working with small apps that are a couple of hundreds or a couple of thousands of lines of code to enormous applications that are over 14 million lines of code. So we need to make sure that Angular scales and scales ups and down. That's part of it. Google, definitely, the brand there is helping. The Angular brand as well. Like AngularJS turned out to be extremely successful because it was solving a huge pain for developers. And the Angular brand is still here. So AngularJS opened the door. And now we have Angular that is really highly inspired by AngularJS. But I would say also evolved with the evolution of the JavaScript ecosystem and general front-end development over time. And the thing that I mentioned about best practices and software engineering, like just software design patterns, this is still the case for Angular. We're like putting a lot of work into making sure that the code is maintainable and following certain practices that we have discovered at Google as good practices when building software. There are examples such as like testability. Angular is built with testing in mind, and we don't have to do any unconventional work such as like monkey patching the window object or like any dirty hacks to just mock dependencies. We just use our dependency injection mechanism and you just pass the mock dependencies at test time. These are three of the reasons that, that I definitely see. There's Thank you for that answer. It definitely helps people probably also trying to grow an open source library on what to focus on, not to help it grow. As Angular has grown in seven times in the past five years and so on, it's grown also in the face of competition, right? And I don't mean competition negatively. I just mean there's a lot of options nowadays, especially around things like Solid, Svelte, Kit, Svelte, Quick, and React, of course. I'm curious, how has this competition influenced Angular? I know, for example, that you're moving from Zone.js to Signals, and I'm assuming this is because of the competition with Solid, but I'm curious how else the competition has affected Angular and its development. Yeah, I love that you're bringing it up. And also, I love that you're positioning like competition and just having different alternatives as something good, not necessarily bad, because I see how the community often thinks that framework out there is there, spending their time in the, like a dark basement trying to compete with everyone else and hitting all other frameworks, which is definitely not the case. We've had... Ryan Carniero from Solids given give us a talk about their reactivity model. We had Rich Harris talk about Svelte, give us like so we're in touch. Like we discussed hydration recently with him. We had Evan Yu and obviously Mishko who built Quick was very heavily involved in the initial design of Angular. Yeah, we're talking to all these people and we're learning different things from each framework. For example, when we were evaluating the different, like we wanted to change the Angular's reactivity model because we saw that ZoneJS might not be the most optimal thing because of the way it operates. It just assumes that we're going to be performing global change detection. We started researching different alternatives and we have also always, we already have a compiler. So we're thinking, should we just make our compiler a little like more sophisticated so it can track dependencies at build time or... And this way we can have the runtime reactivity that is supported by this compiler. 
Or should we just keep it the way it is, compiling templates to very eff efficient instructions and use an alternative reactivity primitive, such as signals? Because, yeah, why not? Or should we use signals in the way that they're being used in Solid? Or should we explore something more with proxies instead? So we just explored this reactivity space. We learned a lot from different frameworks, from Solid, from Svelte. We learned a lot from Vue, like all these frameworks, which have already really well established patterns for reactivity. And we tried to put these reactivity concepts into the context of Angular and see how they fit the Angular's mental model and Angular's change detection. And what is going to be the most efficient, the most like performance and developer like ergonomic thing for us to do. So we decided to go with signals. That's one example where we drew a lot of inspiration from SolidJS, for instance. And this has been an ongoing process. We're looking into how we can improve the Angular authoring experience because we got feedback from one of our developer surveys that this is a good opportunity for us to modernize the authoring experience for components. We have been looking at the entire framework space and evaluating the trade-offs for each individual altering format and figuring out how it fits the Angular's principles. So one of the minor changes that we did recently, I'll say it's minor just because just changing the control flow statements like our NGF and NG4 are now going to look a little bit more, people are saying that they look a little bit more like Svelte, but I'll say that they look a little bit more like the templating formats that inspired Svelte in the past. <laughs> So it has been just like a cycle over time where different concepts just prove to be successful over time by being adopted by next generation technologies. Yeah, I like that you point out, and I agree with you, that instead of this competition that people think exists, it's actually you don't compete, but you complete the ecosystem, right? The, everything has its place. And I really appreciate you highlighting that point. You talked about opting for solid inspired signals specifically. I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to how the signals work in Solid versus how Angular is implementing them. I know this because Solid, for example, will use signals in tandem with a compile step. And I'm wondering if Angular does something similar or if it's just a little bit of inspiration and then you're doing something different behind the scenes. Yeah, there are some slight differences. So the signal library is generally pretty small. It's about 200 lines of code, but there are a lot of variations in semantics that can happen there. For example, the Angular signals library has a lot of like laziness embedded in it. So we are not performing a computation on, until it is absolutely necessary for us. And Angular has been having a compiler as well for many years now. There are similarities in this sense. Solids, signals are just reactivities more like both Angular and Solid are fine-grained, but Solid is going one level further. They are on like individual expression level. The reactivity there is on individual expression level, where for Angular, we decided to go a little bit more a little less fine-grained, and we're performing reactivity per view level. And it might not be obvious what view is in Angular. It's like a concept that we're using mostly internally within the framework's runtime. We can think about it as being a fragment from the template of a particular component. We decided to go with this approach just because just we think it is a good fit for Angular, and even though it is not as precise when it comes down to updating a particular the result of particular expression, it has less of a runtime overhead because we'll have to wrap fewer parts of the view in an effect when it comes down to figuring out when a signal within this effect has changed. So both have their trade-offs and that's the biggest difference, the level of granularity. 
for those listening and maybe who aren't as familiar with some of these concepts, I wonder if you could spend a few minutes just talking about signals and effects and tracking effects that change, because I think there's a lot of people who just haven't read the content about that. Yeah, that's a good point. So a signal, we can think about it as a value which we can read and we're getting also, we, we can read it and we can set the value. That's pretty much what a signal is. We can think about it, I guess, as some kind of a variable, but with a getter and a setter method. There is also the concept of effects. So like a proxy? Like a proxy, yeah. It could be implemented with a proxy. Uh, and uh, effects are just functions in which we read signals, and these functions get executed once we change the value of any of the signals that are read inside of them. That's pretty much it. So if we have let's say, signal title, and inside of an effect callback, we read this title, or let's say log it in the console. Once we change the value of the title, we're going to output the value of the title in the console. That's pretty much it. These are the concepts that are relevant for our conversation here. So for those listening who may be familiar with things like RxJS or Redux, it's effectively a subscriber to an observable as an effect, and an effect is observable. Is that close enough for an analogy for people listening? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I like to position RxJS very differently compared to like signals, mostly because I like thinking about RxJS as mostly processing of a synchronous stream of data over time. And signals are a simpler concept that has also a lot of similarities, but we don't have the whole set of operators, let's say. We're not going to be mapping signals to different values. We can do that in Angular if we want to, but we'll first have to convert the signal to an observable. Okay, so a signal is a way to read a value, and when the value is updated, notify a subscriber, aka run an effect. Um, and an effect could be um, updating the DOM or updating a piece of the virtual DOM if you're using that. Or via compiler, actually update, run an effect, uh, update an element, attach an element. Okay, so effects react to changes in signals. Effects are subscriber signals. Great. I think people will appreciate that distinction just as we continue the discussion. Fantastic. Okay, so in, in a way, it's very similar to solid, but you have mentioned some differences there. I'm curious, so is the feeling then that as part of the new direction of Angular, that signals would help the reactivity model. And also you mentioned the authoring experience. A lot of people personally, so I spend a lot of time at conferences talking to a number of developers and a lot of the comments I hear about Angular are around the authoring experience of components where they say, oh, I don't understand the decorator part of it. <laughs> Why do I need to write? And what is like at, I think, ng module or something. And people find that Hard to grok in the beginning, but of course, if they're seasoned Angular developers, it goes away. I'm curious if you could speak to how the authoring experience is changing and how signals and the reactivity model affect that. Yeah, I actually, I love talking about the queries because there is so much history there. And there are so many strong opinions about authoring format as well, because we really get attached to certain like syntactical constructs. And that's very understandable. We have to interact with them constantly. So something interesting about decorators, the Angular team originally proposed decorators to TC39 many years ago. And they were they had different semantics compared to now. They were entirely, we call them design time, but they didn't have any runtime semantics at all. They were just, just constructs that exist when you're writing the code, but at runtime, they had no meaning. And that's how we're using them in Angular most of the time. We just use them to figure out which class is a component and what is the template of this component, the styles and the selector. 
We have been exploring alternative. We have been looking into alternative altering formats as well. It's very early stage. Pretty much we have been doing some very early prototyping with pet projects. And it's not obvious what is the best altering format moving forward. So I can't really comment on what we'll be doing in the future right now, just because we're not aligned on the team as well. I have my own opinions. Other people on the team have their own opinions, which are mostly aligned, but it's not obvious. We need to just put all of them in one design document and evaluate the trade-offs. So what I'm hearing is, since everything's so up in the air and not there's not a lot of consensus, there's maybe a tiny chance that Angular just adopts JSX and we all just continue to write. <laughs> yeah, we have been talking a lot about JSX. I honestly like JSX because of multiple reasons, but also it's I have been getting a lot of questions from people what JSX actually means because is what SolidJS using is it JSX or is it just the JSX syntax? Because JSX has a syntax. It has also a runtime semantics, and it has also some kind of typing information that comes with it. And Solid is aligned with the syntax and with the type typing because you can use it with TypeScript. So there, you can write valid TypeScript with the TSX in Solid, but they have different runtime semantics. For example, they are not consuming in the same way that React does, where they are constructing the virtual DOM with it. So I love a lot of the aspects of TSX, and uh, my opinion here is not like shared between like everyone on team. Everyone on the team. Some people are feeling stronger that maybe we should be using the same templating language that we currently have, and I can see definitely, definitely the. If, if you want one more opinion in your pool, I'm for JSX and Angular. <laughs> but I also see the standalone type of authoring components at a few conferences here and there, and that looks very interesting to me personally as well. Speaking about Angular, this talk is titled Angular Momentum, and it's about how Angular is indeed gaining momentum and growing and all of the new things that are coming up. I'm curious if you could speak to why adoption by a large community is key for Angular. It could be this thing that you just use at Google and it's great. But like it, it seems to be also in your DevRel role, right? Uh, growing a large community of developers is important and really, in a way, pushing it to be a popular framework for UI development is some type of KPI. Why? Yeah, there are quite a few reasons. First of all, if Google builds a popular framework, eventually when Google hires developers, they will be familiar with this framework that is used internally and they will be able to ramp up faster. But also when we have a very popular framework inside of Google that we have built, we're getting a lot of support from the larger community, like Stack Overflow. There are a lot of community libraries which we can directly use at Google. And this is quite helpful for us, for sure. We are getting uh, additionally like some just doing something good for the world this way, just releasing code that is completely open this literally changed my life personally. And I see how it is making a big difference for a lot of people around the world as well, just teaching them best practices, enabling them to grow in their career. There are quite a few reasons for that. The ones that are supporting the business are probably directly are probably the first two that I mentioned. And we can also see that pattern in many other companies. For instance, Vercel, they have Next.js. I'll say Next.js is very well tied to Vercel's cloud business. And we have a builder that came up with Quick, which is supporting their e-commerce platform. We have additionally Netlify that is supporting now SolidJS. So it's a common pattern that we see right now where when someone adopts a particular framework, this could eventually provide a smoother adoption curve to other services. 
We, for example, are trying to provide a really good integration between Angular and Firebase. This is not on the Angular's plate. This is the Firebase team's work. We're pretty much entirely focused on the framework right now. But yeah, that's that's another example. Awesome. Thank you for that. That's a really good answer. I, I wanted to spend some time talking about, you mentioned Quick a few times. And I know there's resumability, which is this thing that's very popular. And it, it's very smart because you serialize everything and you only load JavaScript and attach event listeners and so on on demand. I know Angular 16 has a new hydration system. So it sounds like resumability, at least for now, isn't on the cards for Angular because you're going with hydration. Is that accurate or is that inaccurate? Yeah, one other team that I'm working very closely with and I'm supporting them in a similar way, I'm supporting Angular as the WIS team. And WIS is an internal framework that is used by Google Search and most billion user products of Google where performance is extremely critical. They have been using the concept of resumability for close to 10 years now. And we are evaluating the trade-offs between developer experience and performance between Angular and WIS all the time. Currently, Angular prior to hydration, it didn't really have this proper hydration. We were just taking the server rendered HTML, like when we when the browser turns it to DOM and we're destroying it, re-rendering the application from scratch on the client, which was suboptimal. And even if we want to go the resumability direction, we'll first have to make the framework hydratable. We'll have to take this first step. And yeah, I'm not saying that we are necessarily exploring hydration itself, but we're not excluding it as an option just because if it turned out that this is a viable story for Angular or sub- subset of Angular and provides decent developer experience, we might be able to eventually add this feature. And Where did you mean resumability? You just said hydration. Uh, I, mean, I mean resumability. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Okay, so it's not off the cards. It's just you, hydration is a step in the direction of resumability if you feel it's necessary one day. This is awesome because the prevalent discourse is hydration bad, resumability good. At least that's what the builder team keeps saying. Um, But in your case, what you're saying is, no, no, hydration actually is requisite for resumability in some sense. Yeah, yeah. And there has been the argument by some framework authors that you cannot go resumable if you're already using hydration. It depends. You might not be able to use the exact same features in the framework that you're using today if you want to make it resumable. But does that make it a different framework or does it just make it the same framework with more constraints? So it's a very interesting topic. Yeah, definitely. Do you see a future, and feel free to decline to answer it all, but do you see a future where Wiz and Angular eventually merge into one God framework that kind of just takes over the web because it gives you all the benefits of Angular and it's really fast? Yeah, well, Wiz is really tightly integrated with the tech stack that we have at Google, and a lot of these things are just not open source, mostly because it doesn't make sense for them to be open source. Just Google operates pretty differently because of the monorepo and the build system we have. Maybe there are going to be some ideas inspired by Wiz that are going to become part of Angular and vice versa, but I, I don't see the future where we have entirely, like, absolutely the exact same tech stack outside and inside of Google. Thanks for that was a silly question, but I'm glad you humored it. In in your talk, you mentioned you put out an RFC for declarative lazy loading and templates, which is really awesome, right? And in React, we've got the suspense thing going on, and server components now have async await for data fetching, which is in some degree could be considered lazy loading, I guess, if your data is um, a component or something. Can you explain a little bit more about this RFC and why you decided to add it to Angular? 
Yeah. By the way, it was not a silly question. It was a really good question about uh, OS and Angular. I appreciated it. Yeah, I uh, am really excited about the deferred blog. That's actually one of my favorite features ever, probably. <laughs> it's a really easy way to lazy load code entirely declaratively, just because you're just putting something into a block, part of your template, and you declaratively specify when you want to load these like the piece of code, like the part of the template and all the trans transitive dependencies. And you're also declaring specifying when you want to prefetch it. So you can prefetch it, let's say, immediately when the application is open in a non-blocking way with request idle callback, for instance. And you can lazily load it, let's say, when it gets into, uh, lazily load it and render it when it gets into the viewport. So this way, with intersection observers, we're doing all the work that's like you have to do manually in many other similar functionalities. And all of this is happening completely transparently. So that's the feature. You just take part of your template, you say that this is deferred, and you specify when you want to prefetch it and when you want to lazily load it and render it. That's the whole thing. And there is going to be a lot of, I'll say, I wouldn't say magic, but there's going to be a lot of like behind the scene work that Angular does to make that possible. It is just going to add a bunch of dynamic imports and within the Angular CLI, we're going to figure out the optimal bundling strategy for everything that needs to be lazily loaded. And we're going to add some further rendering instructions that are going to inform the prefetching and the lazy rendering. And the most interesting thing is that it may have different semantics depending on whether this deferred block is server-side rendered or not. And uh, there might be an opportunity even for partial or progressive hydration. Imagine if one deferred block, if you have two deferred blocks on the page that were both server-side rendered, if one of them is changing state in the other, we might be able to just have this dependency between them kind of embedded in the server-side rendered content by just figuring it out by serializing the reactivity graph and loading the affected block by state change whenever the state has been changed through the signal. It's... Anyway, there are a lot of exciting things that we're going to follow up with on RFC. We can spend probably a whole podcast talking about it. Yeah, that sounds really exciting because I wasn't aware that some blocks could be rendered only. On, so does that mean then a deferred block, if you mark it as a server rendered block, just that block is evaluated on the server and its output is sent to the client to then be like effectively not hydrated, but you get the idea to be placed into the block? Is that how it works? Yeah, we're not there yet. Currently, if you have a deferred block on the server, we're not going to render it. But there would be a follow-up, I believe we're mentioning that even in the RFC, that once, if we decide to server render it, then we may want to not hydrate it. This is just going to be rendered on the server, but not hydrated. And we can hydrate it when the user, let's say, start interacting with it so that we can make it interactive and handle the user interaction. And that's a relatively simple case. It's, it gets more complicated when this piece of UI is holding state that may mutate the state in another lazy block that has not been hydrated on the page just yet. Yeah. And if a server rendered lazy block, whether it's hydrated or not, if it observes a signal that updates, how does that update in this case? Does the server just push another something, another object that says, hey, this block at this position updated with this new output? Or how, how would that? Yeah, it's very similar to how we're running change detection. Very similar to what we discussed at the beginning of the podcast between, like with the signals and effects. Imagine we have the lazily loaded block, let's say on the in the navigation, which gets hydrated and it mutates state that is used 
in the main content of the page, like the main block of content. Now imagine that we wrap this main content in an effect. So we're going to figure out that uh, the signal that we're reading in this main block has changed, and this can trigger like loading the UI and hydrating it, and potentially reflecting the changes in the signal through the Angular change detection. It's very powerful how with just these two primitives, with signal and effect, we can do so much. Yes, yes, absolutely. This sounds a bit like, for those who maybe dabble in the astro world, this sounds also a little bit like island architecture, where you're able to say, I want this thing to run only on the client, this thing to run on the server, etc. And I want this to, for example, astro I know uses intersection observer to, when something enters the viewport, then hydrate it. How similar or different is this in comparison to astro's islands? And was it influenced by astro? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. I have not been calling it islands mostly because I didn't want to reduce the scope of the work that Fred did in Astro because they also support different frameworks and for us it's only Angular. I don't know if we have looked specifically at Astro for this one, just because we have been looking at React Lazy and React Suspense to understand how React Lazy and React Suspense work. And I would say that there are like, conceptually it sounds the same, similar. Uh, we decided to go the, a little bit more declarative way. And actually, that's part of the reason for this is the Angular's philosophy. Angular is like really going like very declarative and static. We want to be able to analyze the view entirely at compile time with our compiler and make optimizations, where JSX is really dynamic. And you can do anything you want there. And it works great with the virtual DOM model. But when you want to start optimizing change detection further or you want to do some different compile time optimizations, you just need to set constraints and change how JSX functions, the same way that Solid did, for instance. They have custom control flow there, and I love it. And with Angular, we decided we're still going with templates, and probably that's the direction we'll be sticking to, mostly because of this constraint space. There is a really good talk by a former coworker of mine, The Power of Constraints, which explains how you just make something a little bit more constrained. This enables you a lot of more optimizations because of a variety of reasons. So just making just by making the view declarative and a little bit less expressive would allow us to make it way easier to optimize and way easier to read as well. Because I've seen some very tangled JSX, for instance, with a lot of nested control flow and complicated use. Okay. In your talk, you mentioned using ESBuild, and it changes the way how Angular builds. I'm curious if you could speak to how Angular was being built before adding ESBuild and now the benefits of using ESBuild after. Yeah, I'd say that that's a big difference between the Angular kind of ecosystem and other communities. I have been getting questions from people on Twitter on like, why is Angular using its own CLI, for instance? Why don't you just enable simple builds with Vite? And that's something that maybe we should do. Uh, one of the reasons why we did it is to ensure that we can change the build mechanics without breaking like developer applications. So if we have an application like if we have if you're managing your whole build process within your CLI, you don't have to think about optimizations that you can make in your build pipeline so that you can produce smaller bundles. We're just going to change this particular piece of the build pipeline and we're going to enable smaller bundles for you or improve your build process. And that's exactly what we're doing with ESBuild. Before ESBuild, we were using Webpack and uh, it's really powerful for sure, especially after introducing this caching in version 5. They made builds even significantly faster. But in the meantime, we started using Webpack in combination with ESBuild. We were using Webpack to bundle your application and after that, we were passing this to 
built to minimize, to like optimize your bundles. We're using it only as an optimizer. And this already improved build speed with about 10% without relying only on Tursor because we're using entirely Tursor, which is JavaScript based. And that's what's completely transparent for people. They just got their, fa- their builds like 10% faster. After that, we changed the way we were doing some compile time transforms with our build optimizer and we improved build speed with another 10%. And after that, we're thinking like, as build is growing in maturity, a lot of people are using it and are successful with it. Why not try to experiment with replacing Webpack with ES build entirely and just ensure that everyone's build continues to function just the way they function today, but just making it faster. <laughs> And uh, yeah, we did that. And uh, some of our early test point show that a lot of applications receive, like all of applications built gets about 2.5 times faster just by updating to the latest Angular CLI. Wow. Is that because ES build is built in a different way than Webpack somehow? And it's built for performance? That's why? Yeah, it's implemented in Go. So it doesn't necessarily use JavaScript for everything. And performance benchmarks have been very important for the ES build team as well, specifically for Evan. I wonder if at some point somebody's going to come and write another ES build, but in Rust, and that's going to be even faster. Yeah, there is one already. What is it? Is that what you see? Yes, small web compiler. That's from Vercel. Yeah, I think it started as an independent project and they ended up hiring the maintainer. So that's, yeah, that's another example. Did uh, did Angular experiment with that as well to try and get the builds even faster? Or? The difference was not too significant. And at the time when we started using ES build, as WC has was not like we didn't consider it to be as like mature yet. And if we're going to migrate some of the biggest corporations to a build system, we wanted to make sure that their applications are gonna work. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely is important, especially when so much business depends on it. All right, we've got a couple more questions. I want I wanted to ask you about Angular has always been, at least to me, you know, I like your mental mapping of Angular doesn't actually map to React, but more Next.js, because Angular is a framework. It's kind of like a Swiss army knife. It has a lot of different things, and it gives you these things. For example, even routers, right? With React, you don't get that. Angular has things like forms, routers. I heard something about a CDK, a cloud development kit. I don't really know if that's a thing, but I'd love it if you could speak to the other updates to these various Angular components that you seem to have mentioned in your talk as well. Yeah, React and Next.js, like Angular maps better to Next.js, but it's somewhere in between also because it provides you this full stack for development of front-end applications. We don't necessarily have the back-end component here. We have the server-side rendering, but we are not providing you these like API routes, for instance. With Angular, we want to make sure that if you're building a UI, you have everything that you need. So you have the framework to build your components, but you also have a forms module that is following the exact same versioning as the framework. And we run integration tests all the time since both Angular itself and the forms module, they live in the exact same monorepo. So we have plenty of integration tests there and we really know if something breaks just because every time we push a commit we're going to test to either of these we're going to test it against the entire google monorepo with i don't know 4500 angular projects or so so we want to make sure that we have this really well integrated solution that is stable and uh, yeah works across releases and yeah as you mentioned we have the forms module that's only one part of the piece we have the router which has been having it has been feature complete for the past six years now, seven years now, having a variety of different features, preloading, nested routes, obviously, and even some 
magical features that I don't know about that are too shakable if you're not using them. Uh, we also have Service Worker. We have, as you mentioned, the CDK. The CDK is the Component Development Kit, where we have, we have a set of components that you can directly take and use in your application and style them based on your design. They're like headless components, like selects and things like this that you can... Yeah. And the CDK also comes with different tools for accessibility. Like accessibility has been critical for us at Google, and we believe it's critical for any application. And I understand also that when you're building a startup, you can't really focus on accessibility too much. Like you target, you want to ship the application for most of your users with like you have with 20% of the effort, you want to get 80% of the results. So it's understandable. That's why we have the CDK so that you can make your application accessible as part of these 20% of the effort. That is so awesome. So if I think about these things, forms, routers, and CDK, I can literally think of different React libraries that do this, but they're discrete. They're different from React. I think of the Formic or React Router or Reach UI, which are all just separate NPM things you install. But I love how Angular just encompasses these in itself. And as you mentioned, it's tree shakeable. So if you don't use it, you don't pay for it in a way. That's fantastic. All right, we're about to wrap up, but I have to ask you this, Minko, because I really want to hear from you as the the person who works on this day in, day out. What do you see for the future of Angular going forward? It's already in quite a good place, right? There's standalone components. I'm really personally very excited about that, just the simplified authoring experience. There's the signals, of course. There's all of these things coming for the future. What are you excited about? Yeah, we touched on a lot of the things already that we're going to be working on in the future as well. Signals, they're at their very beginning like, phase. We have the signals library, and now we're going to work on the fine-grained change detection in version 17 that we're going to ship, I guess, in November. And from there, we'll be looking at further improvements on the deferred block so that we can incorporate it as part of server-side rendering. And yeah, these are two of the bigger things that will be happening throughout 2024. Fantastic. These server, just, I'm still obsessed with this server block thing. Are they close to what we consider React server components where the the blocks, as it were, render on the server and their output is sent to Angular on the client side and then rendered by client side Angular? Or is this, am I off understanding that? Not necessarily, yeah. We are not necessarily aligned with the philosophy behind React server components. I guess it depends. Their React server components are, I guess, a lot of things. But it will enable, the default block will enable us to have server-only components, let's say. So if you want to render a component only at the server and not pay for the JavaScript, in the browser, this is something that you'll be getting. We're not going to, since like Angular doesn't use Virtual DOM, rendering on the server and getting the patches that you need to do on your component in the browser, that's not going to be part of the story. And we're not going to have the data aspect as well, especially the data aspect, we're feeling pretty opinionated about it because it gets really easy for you to, la- to leak sensitive data on the client if you have these server blocks. There are other frameworks who are experimenting with them, and this is something that makes us a little nervous. So likely we're not going to go this direction, but there are alternatives. We we have been experimenting with server-only services, uh, which enable part of the this in the part of the data story. Not part of it, but like the entire data story. Fantastic, man. This could honestly be, this could go on for another 45 minutes, maybe half an hour, but let's leave it here just in, in respect for your time. Minko, honestly, such a such an honor to be able to talk to you and get these insights from Angular. In closing the podcast, I'd love to give you the opportunity to wrap up with any closing thoughts or anything you want to highlight. Yeah, just thank you very much for listening to this podcast. And I really appreciate 
to hear everyone's thoughts. If you have any comments about what we have been up to, and if you have any feedback that you would love to share, just feel free to connect with us. We're the Angular team. We're on Twitter or comment in our RFCs. We really want to make sure that with uh, the projects that we have on the roadmap, we're solving developers' problems and we're making Angular better for everyone. Yeah, and of course, all the links to the RFCs, to the Twitter, etc., will be in the show note captions. So feel free to check out the description of the podcast episode. Minko Gechev, an absolute honor, privilege. Thank you so much for making the time to come on the podcast, chat with us, and share your knowledge. It's it's a huge honor, and I don't take that lightly. So appreciate your time. Really appreciate it for having me. Thank you. <laughs>